0: This is CliffCentral.com. The Daily Maverick Show
1: on CliffCentral.com.
0: Hello and welcome to The Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. My name is Greg Nicholson and I've got to admit I'm a little bit tired today because I was up last night reading this book that's sitting here in front of me. It's called Get Up, Stand Up personal journeys towards social justice. And it was recently re- released by Mark Haywood, and I'm glad to welcome Mark into the studio today. How are you?
1: Thanks for having me, Greg. I'm great, and I'm sorry I kept you up.
0: <laughs> the recently released book, it's a great read on Mark's 30 years as an activist fighting for social justice, it begins with his childhood, born in Nigeria, raised in Botswana, educated in the UK, and it charts his early activism against apartheid, the fight for treatment for those living with HIV AIDS, and his more recent role in lit- litigation also working to fight corruption and ensure South Africans receive the opportunities they're entitled to and basic standard of living. Get up, stand-up includes elements of memoir, history, political analysis, and it ends with quite a painful but frank view of the country and the world. And, of course, being Mark, there's a call to arms for citizens to do what they can to build just societies. There's no need to introduce Mark, but let's go through a quick history. He's currently the executive director of Section 27. He's known as one of the organizers of Save SA, the anti-corruption and anti-xenophobia marches. He led the AIDS law project for 13 years, and he co-founded the Treatment Action Campaign. He also chaired the UNAIDS Global Reference Group on HIV and Human Rights, and he, he served as the deputy chair of the South African National AIDS Council. So obviously there's a lot to get through, <laughs> but first I want to start, Mark, with your childhood. So your parents were British, and you grew up as an expat in Africa while also studying in the UK. Can you tell me a little bit more about your relationship with your father? You write that you wanted to be everything he wasn't. Can
1: you tell me how did that influence your, your belief in social justice? Well, you, you're correct. My parents were British, you know. They were sort of a generation of the 1950s uh, British middle working class. And uh, my father uh, comes from Manchester in northern England um, from a very working class background. And somehow by some... Luck, as far as he was concerned, he uh, got a job with Barclays Bank in Nigeria and moved to Barclays, moved to Nigeria to Lagos in 1963. Um, but you know, I talk quite a lot about my father in the book, particularly in the early parts of the book, because uh he carried with him i think many of the prejudices of a white working class uh, uh british person of that of that period prejudices i think about africa as a whole and its prospects for proper successful development prejudices about about race prejudices about class as well so you know as i as i started to grow up and from quite an early age uh, and as I started to form my own views and views about equality and views about justice, uh, it took much longer to understand class, then obviously I began to clash, uh, with my, with, with my father. Main, mainly on, on political issues, but he was also a very kind of, strict, disciplinarian, Puritan uh, man, very strict about money, very strict about what he considered to be moral and immoral about how a young person should live their lives. So, you know, it was a difficult relationship from a very, very early age. And in fact, a difficult relationship almost until he died uh, nearly two years ago. Um, I think there was a a degree of reconciliation, but the reconciliation was on the basis that there are certain things that you never talk about because if you ever tried to talk those questions, any political question, basically, then it was, took you on a road to a pretty nasty uh, conflict. So at the end of his life, I just stopped trying to talk about the real world as I know it. So there was
0: almost an, by the end of his life, uh, agree to disagree. Type of atmosphere.
1: I, I think so. Yeah. I mean, he had kind of come to respect me to some extent. I think I met some of his criteria because I'd become relatively well known for what I do, because I've written, because I occupy a number of of positions. So he could tick. His expectation boxes on those levels, but he couldn't tick anything on the level of what I actually stand for, uh, in the world, which is, uh, you know, is, is quite radically different from what he stands for. You know, he thought Margaret Thatcher was great. I thought Margaret Thatcher was horrible. Uh, um, he, you know, lived in Botswana and South Africa in the 1970s and early 1980s and uh, he would never, I would, I would describe him as an apologist in some ways for apartheid, not an active. Uh, endorser or supporter, but he was one of those people who made up excuses. You know, well, mm. black people live better in South Africa than they do in other African countries. So, what are you complaining about that type of that type of issue? Which just, of course, grated with me and my experiences. And then there's also, I
0: guess, the legacy, his ties
1: to the legacy of colonialism, w- working for Barclays. Yeah, and uh, Barclays DCO, which stood for Dominion and Colonial uh, Office. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's – he was an expatriate. He l- worked in Lagos and then in northern Nigeria and then in Kumasi in Ghana and Takaradi and Accra and ultimately in uh, Khabarone, which was, you know, where I was for most of my teenage years. Uh, but very much, you know, not a – not a colonial property owner not part of the bourgeois part of the paid uh, uh, middle and working classes that were sought out to do the sent out to do the work of of capitalism and uh, and, and colonialism in these post-independence uh, societies and to set up their business networks really
0: now another key influence of yours is and you write beautifully about it um your passion for music um literature movies can you just elaborate a little bit for me on how these, when you started interacting with these, and how, in particular, they opened
1: your eyes to the horrors and the reality of apartheid? Well, you know, one of the one of the perks for of my for my dad of Barclays Bank and working in Africa was that you got to send so called perks was that you got to send your kids back to England to go to school uh so i was very fortunate i was sent to in england they call them public schools for some reason they're actually private schools i was sent to a very ancient uh private school that was set up in the 8th or the ninth century one of the oldest schools in england and you know it was a very very high quality of education and very early on one of the things that i loved in my education was my introduction to literature and to reading but i In the way I was taught literature, in the way that I read, never read it in a passive way. So if I, you know, if I read Shakespeare, then I pulled from Shakespeare what I think was radical and about justice and as well as the beauty of, of writing by Shakespeare, you know, the lilt of the literature, the movement, the poetry of it. But literature always talked to me about justice. It seemed to me that everything that I read, was political. Almost all great literature, even if it's about love, often is about love and injustice, love and society, class and society. So, you know, I I took from literature uh, a map for life, and I used that map to inform how I thought about the world and also what I should do about the world. So it instructed me to action. And and that coincided with the time when we moved to Botswana. The family moved to Botswana in nineteen seventy seven. And the first things I heard when we moved to Botswana was about the murder of Steve Biko uh in nineteen seventy seven. And later, you know, a little bit later, a few years later, the death of Soretzi Kama, the first uh president of of of, of Botswana and so I started to move from a, being a student of English literature to trying to understand through South Africa's literature and writings of Nelson, political writings, but also literary writings, what was going on in South Africa. And that just kind of cemented me uh, as a youngster to a commitment to... To the issues initially, of course, of overcoming apartheid and to freedom and equality in South Africa. But, of course, over the years, it's it, it evolved, and I still, Greg. I mean, I, I still think that that great literature is perhaps one of the most uh, important influences for people who want to believe in, in in social justice. I can't put literature here and music there and painting there and issues of politics and justice somewhere else. And that's what I'm trying to say in the book. Part of what I'm trying to say in the book is that we get into these struggles because we are human beings concerned about the plight of other human beings, and books is very often where you find that plight best described.
0: One of the lines I, I wrote down from your book is, literature contains instructions for the living. And you've got quite a few uh, d- quite direct lines like that in there that I, th- I thought were quite quite poignant. But then you were also growing up in an era when punk rock it became became quite big in the UK, and there was also a fair bit of t- turmoil and, and political changes within the UK, as well as what you'd experienced in Southern Africa. Can you just tell me a little bit about that? Seeing these guys like. Um, Johnny Rotten and Sid Vicious. That's right, that's right. You know, seeing God Save the Queen and these sort of things. It seems like that must have been revolutionary for you in terms of wanting to act out, wanting to rebel, wanting to challenge authority.
1: Yeah, look, quite a lot of it I made sense of much later, including when I was writing this book. But, you know, here was me in a private school in the middle of York in northern England, uh, you know, York and Yorkshire, once upon a time, industrial, uh, in the early days of, of, of Thatcherism, mass unemployment, 1979, what the British called the winter of discontent. And of course, as we were just talking about, the the political discontent carried over first of all its perhaps most immediate expression was in music and along came in the late 1970s you know a band like the Sex Pistols which absolutely scandalized British society because people like Johnny Rotten s- used the word fuck on radio and you know they produced an album called Never Mind the Bollocks here's the Sex Pistols and they they tore up all the norms about music but all the norms about the kind of complacent post-war norms about dress and decency and behavior they exposed a lot of its a lot of its hip- hypocrisy as well as its political hypocrisy so england was suddenly full of people with safety pins in their noses and torn clothes and sometimes mohican haircuts and it it was a rupture it was a social rupture that was part of an economic rupture and part of a political rupture and you know i was a coy scared middle class kid who couldn't associate myself directly at the time with those movements but the power of the music uh of this one album the sex pistols produced the never mind the bollocks album which got banned and the god save the queen which got banned really just went deeply into me and in a sense spoke to my own sense of anger my own sense of alienation from what was going on even though I was a coward and I couldn't demonstrate it in quite such an obvious obvious way
0: if we go back for a second and talk about Steve Biko again Uh, you said when you came to Botswana that was one of the first things you heard about is I'm not sure if it was reported as a death or a murder back then but then you you learnt more about the case when I think it was you read Donald Woods' book uh, Biko. That's right. What influence did you have, and did that have on you, and how did you feel when you were
1: reading these details? Well, it you know it shocked me because the one thing that had happened, even though I was the you know the son of British middle class parents who post colonial post colonial attitudes, um, I had grown up in Africa, independent African countries. That had managed to shake off, you know, racism, institutionalized racism, and where there was equality and where there was freedom. Of course, we have to put both in inverted commas because of what we know about the legacy of colonialism. So, arriving in Botswana and suddenly having such proximity to South Africa and to apartheid South Africa uh, was a shock to my naive uh, little thirteen or fourteen-year-old uh, sensibility. And that was obviously compounded by, uh, reading about the death of Steve Biko. I don't remember exactly how it was described, but certainly as I started to find the literature, ANC literature, liberation literature, you know, it was presented as what it was, the murder of, of Steve Biko. So that, that impacted, I mean, I, it's a strange, I was two things in Botswana as a kid in Botswana. On the one hand, I was a, teenage pissed, if you like, uh, joying in the freedoms of Botswana in a very multiracial society, um, getting drunk, falling in love, you know, on the other hand, I was increasingly angry with South Africa and increasingly angry actually with the complacency of Botswana society, particularly, uh, white expatriate society, which I found myself in. So I began to, speak out about that. I began in a small way to rebel about it, to question it. Um, I tell the story in the book about how, you know, one of my first political acts was uh, to grab the microphone on New Year's Eve at the golf club, Chabaroni Golf Club, and gather the caddies together and sing Corsica Africa which you know was such a simple little harmless uh, thing but it scandalized and shocked uh, the golf club attendees that night and my father was made to apologize for it and you know so it was it was little things but really it was just the proximity that this thing 20 kilometers down the road over the border was going on and it was an appalling thing and it, and, uh, I, I thought very, very deeply about it.
0: It's almost the, the inherent contradictions of growing
1: up white middle class in Africa, but with a conscience or uh, exactly with, with eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And they were contradictions and, and that the contradictions created internal conflicts and they created conflicts within my family and within my surrounds if you like as i tried to make sense of these things because when you're 13 or 14 or 15 you know you don't arrive with a uh, grow up with a ready-made political understanding or political conscience you you have to try to fathom out what is going on and what you actually believe and what you what you stand for
0: how did your mother
1: respond to this nascent activism well you know my mother was an activist in her own way um you know throughout her career she taught at schools uh in again Nigeria Ghana Botswana uh um, she's always been you know somebody who's worked on charitable issues tried to work against uh, apartheid against racism against inequality but i think obviously her approach is a very different approach to the approach that that i took so you know when i left university, the point at which I left university and then joined the Marxist workers tendency of the ANC and kind of went underground in the struggle for a number of years was really a point at which there was a kind of major parting of ways in the ways that you address these problems. Do you address them politely and in kind of a middle class way or do you actually start to take these things head on? Uh, and I believed that it was necessary to take them head on.
0: So you mentioned the Marxist workers tendency. So perhaps for this part of the interview I should call you Peter Davies or Sean Kelly. Which <laughs> <I> was <laughs> your aliases when yeah. when when you joined joined that part of the movement. You left Oxford, you went to Oxford, which is I guess in the book you you know quite directly engage with some of those other questions you had to ask yourself about the causes you're committed to, but the the relative privileges you're able to enjoy. Mm. But when you left Oxford and joined the the Marxist workers' tendency after after certain levels and, and sort of becoming more and more of an activist, you put an immense amount of unrewarded work into this. You lived in squalor. It seems to be a quite radical devotion to the cause that... Number one, you're very removed from South Africa. You're, you were yep. working in the UK trying to get back here and do work back here. But also there seemed like there was quite a thankless job. Why, why did you do this? Well, it, I, I think a lot of people would think as well. Like, yeah. This, this guy just left Oxford. He could do
1: anything. <laughs> okay. So I had three years of ivory towers. Um, during those three years, I, was very angry about what was happening in South Africa. Remember, this was the middle of the 1980s, 1983 to 1986. It was the time of growing uprising, growing murder within South Africa, growing revolt. Um, by the time I got to the end of, of being at Oxford, I had absolutely decided that I wanted to be part of the liberation struggle. Whilst I was at Oxford, I had met members of the Marxist workers' tendency of the ANC who were a small faction uh, allied to the ANC but expelled from the ANC who argued for, you know, a socialist ANC, a mass-based workers' ANC. And that coincided with my own conversion to, to Marxism and Trotskyism and, you know, the stuff that you study and you think about whilst you're at university. So they said to me when I left... Uh, would I come and work, what they, what we called be a full timer, full time political activist? I said yes. They were in exile working in Hackney in East London. Hackney was a miserable, at that point, very depressed area of London. So I ended up on kind of working class, dilapidated working class housing estates. Uh, but very, very anxious to prove my worth to the liberation struggle. So I, I always had a bit of a kind of, not sure what the right word is for it, but you know, I, I wanted people to believe in my commitment. I was very conscious both of my race and conscious of my class. And so I felt like I had to go the extra 10 miles all of the time to prove the levels of my, my commitment. So in those, you know, in those years we, we didn't receive any pay. I signed on the dole in Britain and got, uh, 30 pounds a month or something like that. Um, and literally worked 18 hours a day for the next three years uh, with this group of people. On a material level, it was pretty horrible. On a political level, it was fascinating because, you know, this group of people included people like Martin Legasic. Uh, now a very well-respected uh, left historian from South Africa who was in exile, part of this group, another person called Robert Peterson, uh, who's a senior counsel now in Cape Town, David Henson, who worked with people like Rick Turner in the early days of the trade union movement. So intellectually, it was, you know, very, very, very rich and very interesting and very challenging, and, and that was good enough for me.
0: And you were mostly producing literature or propaganda it might have been called for the dissemination in South Africa
1: yeah we we the name of the there was a front organization called the southern african labor education project that was the the organization we operated under that organization produced material for the trade unions for the num for the early kosatu uh, just basic very good quality training and educational and empowerment material for, for workers and trade unionists. But that was a front for something called Inglaba Yabasebenzi, uh, which was the actual journal of the Marxist workers' tendency of the ANC. And Inglaba was – we produced it three times a year. It was a much more intense, much more deeply political, theoretical journal uh, that we smuggled back to South Africa to arm activists with a political understanding of the ferment and the causes of the ferment and the challenges of how to build the ANC and how to overthrow capitalism and and so on so you know we we I, I was involved probably in producing 10 or 50 for three years 10 or 15 of those they're still it's still a I think a marvelous high quality it's it's not published anymore but they're in the archives at Vitz, Very, very high-quality jour- uh, uh, journal. We smuggled it back to people like Zaki Ahmad and other names that are familiar now, uh, who were put part of the same tendency, but operating in South Africa.
0: Almost seems like a bygone era for when, I, when I'm reading this, about the political activism back then, and how, how important it was to have these journals, pamphlets, and so on, and you still see them occasionally at different marches? There, there'll be a group of that's right. Very leftist-looking dudes. Yeah, you know, yeah. trying to sell you a little pamphlets, and you're thinking, "What? Well, who reads pamphlets anymore?" <laughs>
1: <laughs> it, look, it was, it was a very different different world. You know, that world mm. of the, of the 1980s and the 1990s, particularly the 1980s. You know, before the collapse of. Of, uh, so-called communism in 1989, the collapse of the Berlin Wall. So the world was divided between people who thought that capitalism was a good thing and most people who thought, who fought for socialism and believed in socialism, but different kind of brands or theories of how to, to get to, to, to socialism. Of course, we were part of the, the socialist, uh, not mainstream, but uh, certainly part of the socialist movement.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. I'm Greg Nicholson, and I'm here with Mark Haywood, talking about his recent book, Get Up, Stand Up, Personal Journeys Towards Social Justice. Now, Mark, one of the interesting things I find with your book is the difference between Stalinism and Trotskyism and within the leftist movements and and those pushing for socialism – how that influenced your politics at the time. And when you finally did return to South Africa, I think it was in the late 1980s? That's right,
1: 1989.
0: You joined the ANC as an entrist. What does that mean? Can you just break that down
1: for me? Entrism basically meant that you accepted that the ANC had a mass following and that it was the engine of change and it was going to be the engine of revolution. But... You were critical of its leadership because the leadership was a capitalist leadership, and so your job as an interest was to go into that mass political party and argue for socialist policies from the inside. So to try to shift the mass party, whether it was the ANC in South Africa or the Labour Party in Britain, to try to shift it to the left, to try to shift it onto a, a socialist, uh, a socialist program. So. You know, I, I came back to South Africa in 1989 to do precisely that. You know, I came back and to work with groups of young people from Soweto and from Westbury and Bosmont and other places, uh, who were ANC members, youth league members, but to try to teach them and persuade them about socialism and about, and to warn them that an anc following capitalist policies would ultimately disappoint the expectations of the mass of people in south africa and would not be able to deliver equality and freedom and jobs and peace and land which although i've changed my views subsequently since then in in some important ways had a high element of truth about it because it you know we all i think agree that a, a compromise not that the compromise wasn't necessary. The compromise was necessary, and I'm one of the strongest advocates of the 1994 compromise and the constitution and the 1996 constitution. But we gave in too easily to uh, uh, demands or pressure that there should not be a deep-rooted economic uh, transformation. And without a deep-going e- economic transformation, you are never going to solve the social uh, ills of the country. And that was, that was the work you were doing effectively
0: back then, because it was predicted that because of the ANC's roots in, I guess, in, institutions and systems like the church and capitalism,
1: it'll be a transfer of power to elites. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's why, you know, the, I think the writings of the Marxist workers tendency of the ANC were very important. You know, people like Martin Legasic were very serious historians. So their, their, Historical analysis of the ANC going right back to the earliest years of the ANC was a, was a deep and profoundly carefully thought out and well documented analysis. And it was an analysis that really centered on class. And a large part of the analysis was to point out and say, look, however heroic Madiba may be and most other members of the leadership, they come not from the proletariat, not from the working class, not from the very small peasantry in South Africa. They come from the elites of African society, and the elites are wanting to make a pact with other elites to be treated as as, as equals. So there was some prophecy. Well, it doesn't really prophecy because you don't have to be a prophet to understand politics. It's funny that we're still having the
0: same conversations today, or at least recently when yeah. we're effectively talking about the battle for the, the soul and the heart of the ANC. And you've had some of their leftist allies, or that could be debated, but sort of Kasatu, um, the SACP, uh, other, others like Numsa, or even individuals like Swalanzi Mavavi, coming out very strongly against them, saying recently they've actually, or all, all, all this time, they've never been true leftists or never been committed to the socialist cause.
1: Well, you know, socialism has been a very complex. <laughs> Uh, And has been enormously complicated in the last 30 years or so. As I said, the certainties, which were never really certainties, but what people believed to be the certainties that they held in the 1960s, 1970s, early part of the 1980s, were all shattered when it appeared, and again stress appeared, that capitalism was triumphant in the 1990s with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the move of China to embrace capitalism, the collapse of, of Eastern Europe. I think the problem, and I try to say it in the book, is that Marxists and socialists were too dogmatic. They were too fixed in in almost religious beliefs and that they didn't do uh, their proper homework, their proper study of what was going on. And they also didn't think about, okay, in this new environment – what are the levers for social change and i think that's the question that we confront today you know i don't believe any longer that that you can nationalize uh, the you know the capitalist monopolies that that's going to bring peace and prosperity and employment to people i think that that we have to much more directly engage capitalism and regulate capitalism in the interests of all of society in the interests of the environment in the interests of the, of, of the planet I, I, but there's still greg a kind of vacuum in many respects in thinking about the left and where there should perhaps be a much greater degree of consensus about how do we achieve social justice. There's enormous fragmentation and sectarianism, which is a is a terrible problem. And the people who pay the price ultimately are not middle class leftists, but the poor and the working class.
0: You're very well known for your work in HIV-AIDS activism and you got into that work through groups like the AIDS consortium and the AIDS law project project through very well known individuals now such as Zaki Akmat and and Edward Cameron justice Edwin Cameron but i get the strong sense from your book that rather than these individuals or or simply wanting to be involved in activism and now we're talking the 90s we're talking mm. after the transition um, or during the transition i suppose I get the strong sense in the book that the key motivation for your work on HIV-AIDS, and obviously I should say you also work with the Treatment treatment Action uh, Campaign, the motivation seems to be the people you met, um, the people you you met who passed away, people whose children who passed away, the many people who are suffering without help. Can you just, am I correct in saying that? And can you just elaborate a little bit on was that a key driver for you the
1: people who are affected by HIV-AIDS, the ones who died without treatment, their families. You've read the book very well. (laughs) And I'm glad you've understood it in the way that you've understood it. No, look, I, first of all, I didn't ever expect to become an AIDS activist. Um, I was drawn into AIDS activism, as you correctly say, by, almost by accident, by Zaki Ahmad. But uh, in 1994, and, you know, Zaki had been infected with HIV and introduced me to the AIDS Law Project. But, um, you know, what has inspired me was that when I started working in HIV in the early years, I, I found a group of people who were beautiful people, basically. Uh, very heroic, very courageous, very isolated often because of the stigma around HIV, uh, very determined to try to build a response to HIV in the context of a society that either persecuted people with HIV or just didn't want to hear or know anything about it. And, uh, it was working with people and working with people living with HIV that just inspired me, but it also took me back to what we were talking about earlier on about people's inherent dignity. I think about, you know, people's capability of doing good of acting in solidarity with other people of having empathy with other people so that was where I got my power from you know I didn't think that I would work on HIV for more than a few months but the deeper that I got into it the more of a sense of responsibility I guess I acquired that I've been drawn into a very special circle of people uh, and they're not dependent upon Mark Haywood or anybody, any other single individual in particular. But neither could you just, knowing the scale of the problem, neither could you just get up and walk away from it and resume normal life. And we knew, you know, from the early 1990s, so I <clears throat> say to you now, you know, there's six million people in South Africa who have HIV. You don't blink an eyelid, really. Uh, but back in the early 1990s when the epidemic was new and we were saying to people, listen, this epidemic could be as big as three or five million people, nobody, nobody actually believed us. We could see that it was coming. We could see the devastation that HIV was going to bring to communities and families. And for me there was also a direct connection between seeing that and having just stepped out of a fight for equality and human dignity on the basis of equality of race. Now there was this other thing. I can't say okay, job done when I know that job isn't done because there's a new threat and people are not grappling with that new threat.
0: One of the perhaps perhaps interesting or sl- slightly humorous parts of the book is when you mention how you took over at the AIDS law project. Mm. You started leading that and you describe how you ha- you weren't a lawyer. There's a public interest law group, effectively. And you just sort of had to had to run with it.
1: Yeah, I didn't. I <laughs> uh since it's a lesson for for young people today to step up and take big responsibilities. Look, the AIDS Law project did not have a, a head for a couple of years. It had been uh directed by Zaki Ahmed, but Zaki Ahmad left to do other things. And so eventually I thought, well, somebody has to direct this thing Um, I have a vision about of a social justice organization I have a feel about the role this type of organization can play I believe I can build a team for this organization but I didn't know anything about law I'd never studied law in fact I'd rejected law, because for me as a Marxist, law was often described as part of the capitalist superstructure of society and nothing that can ever have any use for poor people or working class people. And I also knew very little about HIV or about running an NGO or a CBO. So I took over very, very unprepared. I had the right frame of mind, but very few of the tools that would be needed to run a a legal organization.
0: Now, I hope this isn't too sensitive, but... You write in the book about how you tragically lost your first two, ch- two children. Can you tell me how did that motivate or affect your
1: activism? Look, it's not—I I, I put it into the book deliberately <laughs> because it did motivate my my activism. Um, because I'll cut and I'll come to the personal tragedy in a second. But if you you know if you remember. We started building the treatment action campaign in particular around the issue of easy medical interventions to prevent mother to child transmission of HIV. Because at that point in the late 1990s, uh, you know, 70,000 kids were being born with HIV a year and most of those children died, uh, within a year or two years and sometimes a little bit, a little bit longer. Um, So that was why we had this campaign, what we called the PMTCT campaign, Campaign to Prevent Mother-to-Child HIV Transmission. But for me, you know, the loss of a a child was not a, a theoretical or academic issue. It was something that I could very personally relate to because in 1995 and 1996, my partner, Sharon, You know, we our first child, and we were in the heat of activism, in the heat of struggle, and we just assumed that, you know, pregnancies were generally without complications. That's what most people assume. And at a very late stage of the pregnancy, we discovered that the boy had hydrocephaly, which is essentially water on the brain, and at 36 or 37 weeks, we had to terminate. That pregnancy, which is a is a nightmare. I mean, I can't really describe the hurt and the horror, and the pain, particularly for Sharon. Um, and then a year later, the same thing happened, but this time, actually due in some ways to medical negligence, because this time a healthy baby girl uh, ruptured the scar <coughs> of the year before's pregnancy and because there weren't anesthetists available and nobody had expected anything to go wrong you know the baby ruptured the scar and and died in the course of of birth and that was there's nothing wrong with that little girl so you know those were horrendous years for me for Sharon uh but I felt what it was like to be a parent To lose a child and in particular I saw what it was like to be a mother to lose a child and the mother's experience because she's the person who grows and develops the child and develops deep emotional bonds even before a child is born. Uh, the mother's attachment is so much deeper. So I think that for me was always a reason why I needed to fight on this particular. I knew the pain and I knew the other people's pain. How difficult
0: was it writing this book, balancing your personal story with aspects of history, politics, analysis? It can't have been easy throwing all these things together.
1: It wasn't, (laughs) you know, I'll tell you if you don't mind just very quickly the story of the book. I do mention it, but I'll be very quick. You know, when the first draft of this book or the first attempt to write the book, what I was trying to write really was more a kind of story of politics and more sort of theoretical analysis of social justice struggles and what could we learn from the work of the TAC and the AIDS law project and so on and I did this draft and I gave it to a publisher who gave it to a reader and the reader came back and gave me a big shock by saying listen this is boring and this is turgid and it's dry and nobody will really want to read it um so I had to chuck that draft completely. I, you know, I, I was shocked for a few months. I was saddened. And he said, make the same points, but try to tell it from your own experience by telling your own story. And I started doing that. And actually, Greg, the second time that I started writing this book, it flowed much more freely and much more easily. So yes, it does. Splice and mix history and politics and literature and love and music and all of those things. But for me, they fit reasonably easily together because one of the main messages I'm trying to get across in this book is that it's human beings who wage struggles for social justice. And it, and the belief in social justice and the willingness to sacrifice and commit to social justice must come from our deepest Emotions and instincts. It must come from a sense, often from a sense of joy in the beauty of civilization. And it must come from, okay, I've joyed. Why can't that person have the same joy? And I guess I'm trying to bring some humanity. I'm trying to stop people like me being seen as some sort of cardboard (laughs) archetypes and get people to understand where activism comes from and where activism should, Uh should go back to.
0: Just, just very quickly, um, working with the TAC, you won, you and a lot of other individuals very closely involved in the organisation won some huge victories, particularly on the rollout of antiretrovirals. But they were very hard fought and extremely intense battles. Mm-hmm. When you look back now, and and you look at the denialism of former President Tabonebeke, his people like his health minister. Um, uh, Manto Shablala even, even, I think it was last year when, when Mbeki continued. Two months ago. Recently, A month ago, very recently. Essentially, yeah. essentially continued his denialism. And yeah. we've seen studies that where, where that policy effectively caused the death of three, 330,000 people that may not have died or likely would not have died if they had have introduced yeah. antiretrovirals earlier. How do you, how do
1: you feel now? Well, um, the AIDS epidemic is not over, and one of the things that we're thinking a lot about at the moment is fears that the AIDS epidemic may actually be about to return with some vengeance uh, because of our failure to prevent new infections, because of our failure to manage things like tuberculosis, and because of the weaknesses in the health system. But South Africa need never have had the scale of HIV crisis that we have, that we're confronting today. And what we're confronting today is still directly related to the failure of Thabo Mbeki as president of South Africa, not just his failure, to his active propagation of ideas that confused people, to his active standing in the way of policies required by the Constitution that could have saved lives and prevented deaths and prevented HIV infections, so one of the things I am trying to do in this book, and it's partly about my personal uh, need to get it off my chest and to get it recorded for all time, is that this man must not be forgiven. Uh, certainly not forgiven until he has admitted his complicity, direct complicity in hundreds of thousands of deaths and all of the pain that was associated with that. So I want, even if Thabo Mbeki feels that he can appear reinvent himself as as a urbane intellectual thoughtful political leader and a constitutionalist i want to be saying to society hold on a minute just because you're desperate to find that sort of person somewhere don't go looking for it in tabo and becky because he may not be a jacob Zuma. But many of his traits have as deep social consequences as what Jacob Zuma has been doing to us in the last few years.
0: I am going to read you a passage from, from your book and with questions that you've posed to yourself. So you write, Two questions keep me awake at night. How can it be that when so many people know what's wrong with our country and the world, when there are so few people who defend the status quo, we continue to career down a path of, to destruction what holds us back from building organisations that will bring
1: social justice and equality? Well, those are the, <laughs> those are the. I mean, that's. I guess we could spend another hour talking about that. I mean, it, it. One thing we can't say about our situation in South Africa or the world is that we don't know. We can't say we don't know about climate change. Uh, and the consequences of climate change further down the line. We can't say we don't know about the inequality. We can't say we don't know how to reconstruct society to make it more equal, more fair. I struggle every day as I walk down the streets at the two worlds that you see with left eye and right eye. One is a world that is actually very comfortable in itself, that has gadgets, that has modernity, that goes to clubs, that is... Happy and the other world is a world that is denied all of that and that suffers. And how do we, how does the, does the, does the, the world that has everything accommodate itself? How does it close its eyes to so much that is going on on the other side of the street? And when are we going to wake up as, as human beings and discover, a, you know, that we have a common destiny, that we have a common brain, a common capacity to feel pain, a common capacity to joy? Um, I, I don't know. I think we're in a bit of a bind in, in, in how we, in a vision to fix our world. One of the ways you've been trying to fix
0: our world is, with an intense focus on organizing and coalition building, coalitions within civil society. Yeah. Obviously, the Treatment Action Campaign was quite a good example of that. Then you've also been involved with the the Owetu movement, uh, the Anti-Xenophobia March, as well as the Anti-Corruption March. Um, I guess you... I'm not sure if you're a part of it, but you've watched NUMSA try to push its united yeah. front. And currently are involved with Save South Africa, which... Maybe tell me if I'm wrong, but you're trying to, to get the president removed or for him to resign as well as try to reform other aspects of our, of our politics and negative tendencies and systems within our, within our politics. Firstly, why is this coalition building of coalitions of civil society necessary? And can you tell me very briefly about some of the challenges, the immense challenges that you're faced in trying to build
1: such civil society coalitions? Well, it's net. You see, I, I think one of the, Interesting new characteristics of the 21st century as opposed to say the 20th century or the 19th century is this idea of the power that resides in political people and the power that resides in, in civil society. And by civil society, we mean non-governmental organizations, non-governmental people who challenge power and who fight for equality and justice. You know, I've been doing that certainly all of my life since I kind of stepped out of the liberation struggle and into the civil society uh, space. But, you know, I've worked on HIV and I've worked on health more broadly and I've worked on the right to basic education and I've worked on the right to food. But as I work in each of those siloed areas – what I see all of the time is the interconnectedness between the issues, and how often deprivations in access to healthcare services are linked to decisions that are made about budgets, about economy, about fiscal policy. Um, and so, part of my qu- my my quest, if you like, uh, and I'm not alone in this, is not to want to dissolve a hundred thousand. Different social movements and civil society organizations into one big homogenous thing, but is how can we get them to work together and present a kind of popular people's front on these key questions of power? How can they, how can they form a political force? Not a party political force, but how can they form a political force that exerts influence on political parties that sit in parliaments, on presidents, on the private sector, on the private business sector. And I think, I think that is the way we have to go. So, you know, I've done what I can in the last, particularly the last four or five years since we formed Section 27 to tr- try to see, to experiment with building coalitions, to try to experiment with getting people to see the points that they have in common with each other and not just the points of, of difference. But it's not, it's not easy. But it's not over yet either. <laughs>
0: Some of the movements you've been involved with have been criticized as white or, or elites. How do you personally grapple
1: with issues of race and class privilege and does it affect your work? It does affect my work all of the time and I write in the book, you know. I am a white, uh, middle-class person. Uh, white people have a lot to answer for both in South Africa and a lot to answer for in the world. You know, as a white person, I sub- Subscribe to <clears throat> the principles and ideals of non-racialism that were developed in the 1950s and the 1960s by people like Ahmed Kathrada, Nelson Mandela and other people's principles that I think even people like Steve Biko subscribe to. But I think people of privilege, whether it's privilege based on race or privilege based on class, have got to be prepared to make sacrifices, have got to be able to put their shoulder behind the wheel of Struggles that are led by working class people, led by poor people, led by, led by black people. And that's what I, what I'm trying to do. Um, that's what we did when we were trying to build the TAC. You know, we tried to build the TAC as a movement of poor people, of people living with HIV, of, of women. But it does seem to be a contradiction at the moment, Greg, and it's something I battle with every day that it's not untrue that a lot of the noise at the moment is being made by elites and that sometimes the elite noise and the elite protest and that's not to say that it has a hidden agenda by the way it's not to say that the elites are trying to protect capitalism or white monopoly capitalism or whatever but if you look at the class character often of people who are starting to gather to protest to think (coughs) it is people from the from more privileged parts of society the revolt and change is going to have to come from people who have really been dispossessed by 21st century modern south africa 21st century world because it's only there that there is sufficient anger to force a deep and radical change and then we are all going to have to think about what that change is and how to to constitute the change so again You know, this is a short interview. It's a hugely complex question to which I've probably given quite a shallow answer. So really I'm just saying I'm very conscious of those questions and they're difficult and you grapple with them every single day. Coming to the end of your book, you grapple with quite some difficult issues.
0: And one of the things – you seem quite hopeful and even in this interview you've mentioned that people are inherently good Mm. or the good outweighs the bad. Mm. But – you also say that us as individuals and perhaps our lack of empathy, our inaction, is the biggest problem in confronting some of these huge societal issues. How do you grapple with that That balance and how do you do
1: that without becoming cynical? Well, if you work with ordinary people, you will never become cynical. One thing I've never... Risked in all my years of doing this is is cynicism because you draw passion, you draw inspiration you force to learn about new things all of the time you force to try to understand the people around you, the good people and the bad people who are around you so cynicism is not a something that I feel at at, at risk of. I do believe that if we can work out really what are the key knots that we need to untangle, and I'm not sure if we do understand them, particularly when it comes to movement building and building of power, that we can unleash good, that we can struggle towards social justice. I, I say in the book that I think that poor people have more power, more political power, more legal power than at any point in history, uh, certainly on paper. How do we start to invoke and to use that power? You know, we are... Dominated and dictated to by minorities, whether they're minorities based on capitalism or anything else, because we permit it. Because we've, we've, we've grown to accept the unconscionable, to tolerate the intolerable. You know, just as Steve Biko in the 1970s, early 1970s, you know, had to bring into being the notion of black consciousness, which was in part saying to black people, listen, you're not slaves. This is not the natural order of life, it, it, as apartheid tells you. You are equals. to stand up and assert your equality. If you don't accept that you are equals, then you're never going to fight and overcome this. And the same applies on the issue of class. If you live without a toilet, without water, without electricity, you send your kid on a daily basis to a school where she may be raped, where she doesn't have teachers. If you accept that you're going to die in a hospital or that you're going to be deprived of medicines in a clinic, if you accept that this is your lot, if you accept that this is the natural order of things, then nothing is going to change. So there's a a big mind shift that has to take place. There's a new type of consciousness that has to be brought into being if we are going to get out of the mess that we're in mark thank you for coming in today
0: thank you very much for having me you've been listening to the daily maverick show i've had mark haywood in studio today his new book is get up stand up personal journeys towards social justice thank you for listening download and share the podcast and we'll see you next week
1: Average show on cliffcentral.com. This is
0: cliffcentral.com.